Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 33, Amateur Hour, The Mobilization of America. The Civil War launched a military effort unmatched in American history until World War I. Even then, the Great War proportionately never matched up against the scale of the former, although World War II came close. By the end of the Civil War era, well over three million men served in the armies of the Union and Confederacy, around half the population of all of those of military age, between 18 and 40. Even that arguably undersells the impact, however, for the war fundamentally changed the relationship of the average American to the country, the government, and the military. The sheer scale of the conflict alone shattered previous assumptions about military service and the function of the Army and Navy in the American mind. It, it was a pretty big deal, is the main theme here. The Revolutionary War and the War of 1812 had been fought with a mix of line infantry and militiamen raised on a shorter term and often from nearby communities. This mirrored the American experience as part of the British Empire. British subjects in North America could enlist as regular soldiers, but more often served in militia units. These might battle against American Indian tribes or engage in personal feuds, and quite often the conflicts were never sanctioned from London. In most cases, however, they simply formed a community defense in an era where law and justice was not always something you could rely on. In times of war, however, they could simply be raised by state authorities or by public appeal to the local community. Yet they rarely traveled too far from their origin. This wasn't necessarily a lack of courage or patriotism, but a matter of logistics and support. When added to a more organized army, militiamen could stay in service for considerable periods, as happened during the Seven Years' War, or French and Indian War. There was, however, some amount of divide in terms of morale and discipline. Most American militia were not trained in the ways of European warfare, and it proved very difficult for them to endure a stand-up fight against organized armies. During the Revolutionary War, most militias skedaddled when pitted against the volleys and careful charges of British infantry, although they frequently performed well in irregular fights. Additionally, their equipment was rarely standardized, and probably few had real bayonets. This caused issues when the average militia soldier had to fend off a charge with whatever might be at hand, perhaps swinging his musket like a club. Nonetheless, well-led militiamen could do immense damage, and they turned the tide of many battles. While British regulars often drove them off, it turned out that the militia could absorb surprising amounts of punishment and still return to the fight again and again. Even when beaten, they would lick their wounds and show up another day. And although colonial and French regulars eventually won the war, the militia made up the disparity in forces in many key engagements. Besides, those colonial regulars often themselves came from militia in the first place. By the War of 1812, however, the militia organizations began to fall behind in military relevance, outmoded as a means of rallying troops. Poor American leadership and a lack of good organization became critical points of failure, which led to humiliating and unnecessary battle losses to the British. Given the size of the Atlantic Ocean, the need to keep pressure on revolutionary France, and the greatly expanded and strengthened position of the American Republic, the United States in the War of 1812 
ought to have held the strategic advantage against Britain, at least on its home turf. Yet the small professional military could never quite match up against the British Army yet, and the theoretically vast national militia failed to ever bring a fraction of its hypothetical strength to bear. In practice, the British could, and did, engage on their own terms, making quick assaults and attacking American forces where they pleased. This podcast shall spare you a long-winded rant on the complete, hilarious pointlessness of the entire War of 1812 for all involved, as well as the bizarre importance we Americans place on it historically. Suffice it to say that both the United States and Britain thought they had won a minor victory, which they did. This was made possible by the fact that they didn't actually have opposing war goals in the first place, and deeply misunderstood one another. The conflict cost a lot of money and no few lives, and ultimately decided nothing. However, for our purposes, there was a significant outcome. The real significance of the war is that it led American political leaders to a thorough reassessment of the military and the place of the militia inside of it. Seeing the embarrassing failure of many officers to effectively command, a new and intensive program of study began at West Point, under Superintendent Sylvanus Thayer. The significance is that from this training, nearly all of the Civil War's professional officers would emerge. We will get into some of the details of a West Point education down the line, and in discussing the life experience of some of its more illustrious graduates. The thing to realize is that subjects such as tactics were not the primary focus. Instead, students learned mathematics, geometry, French, and all of the essentials to become a capable engineer, which many of them did, seeing as that no other schools offered an engineering program in the United States. At the same time, the Republic embarked upon a wave of fortification of major ports and waterways. The government wanted a trained officer corps to man the guns, or sometimes even to personally supervise their creation, plus a strong new artillery corps of considerable skill, and so the United States Army became a much more formidable opponent. Additionally, an expanded size for each class meant that the United States held a proportionately larger officer corps for an army of its size than ever before. This had multiple advantages from the American point of view, and would prove critical to maintaining its strength. Among other concerns, it allowed the United States to maintain a much smaller army than any comparable European power would possess. This, in turn, kept taxes low. Now, before anyone out there starts arguing about what the tax rate in 1820 should have been, let's remember that they were fiscal and political realities. Remember that the United States was still relatively young. The national government lacked much of the organization structure to collect large amounts of taxes, and the states maintained higher budgets collectively than the national government. In many ways, this was a very great advantage. The United States had relatively light and thin settlement compared to most of Europe. Even today, population density remains very low in the United States by global standards, despite having a very high population overall. Collecting national taxes in that day was more difficult and more troublesome. In addition, specie, that is, gold and silver coinage, was somewhat scarcer than in Europe, although paper money in the form of banknotes circulated widely. This had a whole host of other issues in causing boom and bust cycles, and the political squabbles of the role and power of a national bank helped bring down or raise up parties and candidates. 
but for our purposes. The low taxes and easy money made the United States an appealing destination for European immigrants and refugees. And more settlement helped the country's growth, literally and figuratively, both directly and indirectly. But there was more to it than that. Americans had very strong opinions about standing armies, having seen them, both prior to and after the creation of the Republic, result in dictatorships and tyranny. Even though many Americans might admire some of these figures, people like Cromwell and Napoleon were not seen as entirely wholesome or good role models for a republic. And American leaders often were well-educated. They had seen countless stories from antiquity to modern times where military leaders took over entire states because they had an army at their back. No one could stop them. They didn't want to see that happen at home. In the meantime, foreign threats stayed comfortably far away. For most of its early life, the United States had only three potential threats, and only one of these could be identified as existential. Great Britain. France and Spain were sometimes friendly, and sometimes not. But language and political barriers made it impractical for them to attempt military dominance over the United States. Besides, neither had a strong base from which to project power, whereas Great Britain had British North America, what is now Canada, and the superior navy. France lost most of its colonial holdings before the founding of the United States. And while Spain, for many years, held Florida and New Orleans, they had little interest in further expansion in North America. Napoleon's ambitions, and his need for money, and even the possibility of both as competitors in North America with the Louisiana Purchase. This simultaneously made the United States too large for any European power to functionally threaten, at least directly, and gave the young republic control over the entire Mississippi. That left the Native Americans, or the American Indian, and for most of the republic's early years, they were the only opponents, or sometimes victims, of the military. With an army little more than 10,000 in uniform, the formal military could only occupy a handful of posts across a very long frontier, but they were often more than enough to defeat any individual tribal force. The army didn't stand alone, however. During most of the Indian Wars, and even during the Mexican-American War, militia units would spontaneously volunteer, although often professional officers will lead them. This, a partial legacy of the West Point education system and its surfeit of officers, lent a leaven of discipline to match the high militia morale, and often some amount of proper organization. Of course, the results might appear more uneven in practice than in a good regular unit. Nonetheless, good officers can turn most recruits to a useful purpose given time, and the United States had good officers. Most of the militiamen in the Mexican-American War, just as an example, turned in a quite credible performance. Now, some of them certainly proved less than inspiring on the battlefield, and frequently were an active hindrance off of it. Several units appear to have run wild, if not watched closely by senior officers, and it proved very difficult to punish amateur soldiers. In theory, the top commanders, General Taylor and General Scott, could sentence men who committed murder or theft, or really any breach of discipline, to death if need be. But in practice, 
such crimes prove difficult to even identify, let alone demonstrate in a court-martial. The American forces were outnumbered to begin with. Senior officers were stretched thin. They had more than enough purely military matters on their plate, and so they often overlooked offenses. Even then, egregious lapses in discipline plagued the militia. Not every officer was well-trained or really inclined to military discipline. Political generals lacked formal training or the interest in study, and they performed poorly on the battlefield as a general rule. Though the military arts were not necessarily beyond the ability of a committed mind to learn, most politicians simply wanted some fame to further their careers, and they cared little about the war otherwise. At the same time, many of the militiamen, having signed on for only a year's service, packed up and shipped out right after Chiragordo, part of the reason that General Scott held up his advance on Mexico City. The militiaman, fighting only on his own terms, simply weren't interested in the necessary campaigns for long wars. In years past, the limited nature of warfare made such men useful, but that day was fast ending. This approach still worked within the context of the limited military of the Mexican-American War. It would not work out for a far more terrible conflict ten years later. In 1861, Lincoln issued his first call for troops, which he hoped would unite the states outside of the original Confederacy. This alone conjured up a military greater than anything ever seen in previous American war. Careful thought and planning needed to go into the formation and organization of this new military force. Unfortunately, neither the Union or Confederacy had the time to create some idealized mobilization, and so everything got thrown together on an ad hoc basis. Unfortunately for the United States, Lincoln discovered he had a new millstone at the exact moment he really did not need one more and that millstone was named Simon Cameron. Now, as a result of all the earlier political feuding within the party, Lincoln felt obliged to give the influential, if erratic, Cameron a high post. In 1860, the idea of an actual civil war still seemed absurd to most Republicans, and so the War Department seemed a safe location to stash the man. Besides, Lincoln knew he was no military genius, and he didn't happen to know who might be the right choice for top military organizer at the time. Before we go on, Simon Cameron's reputation is a bit difficult to assess in retrospect. He frequently faced accusations of financial improprieties. The problem is that we don't have clear evidence of any such crimes. He may have used his offices to benefit himself or political allies. But even today, the facts are pretty difficult to judge. That doesn't mean his administration was spotless. From the get-go, Cameron's paperwork was sloppy at best. He signed contracts on poor terms and failed to get strict accountability from those partners. And from start to finish, an aura of mismanagement and corruption affected the War Department under his quote-unquote leadership. From a man sarcastically known as the Winnebago Chief for his alleged thefts from a Native American tribe, well, it didn't exactly help his reputation when the initial mobilization became mired in sloppy, erratic bureaucracy. In truth, Lincoln could have dealt with a corrupt cabinet official, 
but he could not tolerate a slow and inefficient one for long. Fortunately, Winfield Scott still held sway in Washington, although we will soon get into the varying circumstances that led to his departure over the course of 1862. General Scott provided Lincoln with priceless military advice, and Lincoln went ahead learning with the same zeal he displayed in studying the law. He quickly ordered up every relevant tome from the Library of Congress and read them thoroughly. Although his country manners never ceased, in later years of the war Lincoln showed a fairly astute understanding of military activity, and one that would do justice to most armies and commanders. In adapting the historic roots of the American military to present circumstances, Lincoln recognized that no central effort from Washington would suffice, at least not immediately. Just as states had broken off from the national life, so too he would depend on states to mobilize national forces. Thus, Lincoln's initial call for thousands of 90-day men went out, and further recruiting involved organizing from the states. In Richmond, Jefferson Davis undertook much the same kind of activity, and so for North and South alike, a huge proportion of the soldiers fought under state colors as much as national ones, when they weren't local outfits entirely. As a side note, many existing militia companies immediately signed on, and some of the most distinctive that formed the core of early armies were trained as so-called Zouaves, including the Fire Zouaves of New York and the Tiger Rifles of Louisiana. Now, in practice, relatively little differentiated them from other soldiers, although in theory they were sometimes drilled as light infantry. They went to war in markedly colorful uniforms in the main. But these soldiers generally dropped the uniforms and pretensions alike before a full year of campaigning, given the realities of life in wartime. However, even for militiamen, the Zouaves were a bit unusual. Even dedicated militia outfits generally wore practical equipment, though they often retained a distinct and proud identity. Of course, they all got mixed in together quite quickly. No unit larger than a regiment would be expected to hail exclusively from one location, or have a distinct cultural identity. For example, the famous Iron Brigade included the 2nd, 6th, and 7th Wisconsin Infantry, as well as one additional regiment apiece from Indiana and Michigan. Even though all involved fought effectively as purely federal soldiers in the Virginia theater. This kind of admixture was the norm, although all of these specifically were state units. A few soldiers fought under explicitly national colors in the North, and literally none in the Confederacy. The Southern rebels had no regular army at all, apart from some officers. In the Union Army, this came about because of a specific policy favored by General Scott, and this one did not turn out as well as most of his plans. With a long experience in the regular army, and clearly holding extremely low opinions of militiamen from even before his experience in Mexico, Scott insisted on keeping army units tight and intact. Although this policy probably did make them the best units available in 1861, it also kept their experience and skill away from the vast numbers of green militia coming into service. Every sunburned private 
with a single year of federal experience out on the frontier, possessed a valuable leaven of drill and discipline. This could have been made into a priceless advantage if the mere thousands of such soldiers were then spread out to teach tens of thousands of completely new militia. Instead, federal soldiers in their thousands sat on the frontiers and did very little except maybe warding off the odd raid by Native American or American Indians at the very same moments that fresh armies of fellow soldiers were dying pointlessly across the Mississippi. Or alternatively, some were grouped into a handful of formations, keeping their knowledge from spreading out and preventing the full military from benefiting. As mentioned above, technically no common soldier fought under the Confederate Army, and in truth no such organization existed except on paper. Some higher-ranking Confederate officers held official army rank in order to place them higher than any equivalent rank in the state militia. A similar practice existed on the Union side. That does bring us, however, to the somewhat intricate topic of what kind of military ranks existed and what they meant in practice. And since we're going to be throwing a lot of words around like brigade and regiment and major general freely, we should pause to explain what all of that meant. In some ways, very little has changed since 1860 in terms of the basic structure of the military. Nonetheless, most will not be familiar with these unit descriptions, and it all bears repeating as refresher for those who do. Most soldiers in the war, quite naturally, held the rank of private and served in the infantry. They were responsible for their gun, their marching, their courage, and their labor, but often not much beyond that. Within the same unit, a company of about a hundred men, there would also be corporals and sergeants. These men had additional responsibilities and in most cases represented the honor of their company, keeping its flag safe and its troops in line. In battle, they tried to keep the unit together and the soldiers from running, sometimes an impossible task. Each such company would be led by a captain, with lieutenants acting as his subordinates. But the company itself was the basic engine of war. Rarely did troops act in units of smaller size, although a company could be thinly deployed in various specialty roles that left them spread out over considerable distance, such as screening or scouting. Most often, however, soldiers marched to war in blocks of companies arranged into even larger units. Now, the lieutenants existed to carry out orders of the captains, again, trying to keep the men in line and ensuring his orders were carried out. Although lieutenants were the bottom rung of officer corps, their swift action was often crucial to the survival of a company, or even regiments and larger bodies of troops. They had to keep a decently large group of armed men under discipline in frightening circumstances, and see to the needs of those same soldiers before and after every battle. They also had to constantly keep in touch with the orders of their commanding captain, while also making certain the soldiers kept on task, in and out of battle. Captains and lieutenants alike had to grind away at the thankless daily toil of seeing to the fitness of their command outfit. In theory, a unit of around ten companies formed a regiment, led by a colonel. Colonels in those days definitely led their troops into battle, and thus not infrequently came under direct enemy fire. A good one instilled discipline and energy into his troops by example. 
Bad ones led from the rear, so to speak, or not at all, and the activity of these officers made a considerable difference to their soldiers' performance on the battlefield. A good colonel needed some passable knowledge of tactics, and should be able to instantly order his men into a line, change their facing, and ready to fire. A great colonel could look at the ground in front of him and swiftly put together a clear idea of how best to fight upon it without ever losing contact with the units to his right or left, which he often could not see at all. Colonels would have staff officers, such as majors, to assist them. Now, when you hear about a numbered unit, such as the aforementioned 7th Wisconsin, that refers to a regiment, and you will be hearing about a lot of those in the context of the Civil War. Now and then, as circumstances dictated, a battalion might be formed led by a major. This was a unit of two or more companies, but not at the size of a full regiment. Or in some cases, it might be that an undersized regiment was denoted as a battalion instead. Majors outranked captains. However, oftentimes majors would swiftly receive promotion to the rank of lieutenant colonel in preparation to take command of a full regiment later. Specialized artillery formations existed, usually of regimental strength, but which were obviously organized around a dozen or so batteries of guns and the support of such instead of by masses of riflemen. However, these were administrative and organizational in nature, not necessarily individual fighting units. In battle, groups of batteries were assigned roles and locations on the battlefield. But not every army used these kinds of artillery regiments. Just as often, batteries were assigned out to regiments and emplaced by regimental commanders. Both practices had their advantages, and over the course of the war, generals increasingly wanted to control and position their artillery units for maximum punch, leading to a consolidation of artillery firepower and its direction by higher officers in the command structure. As demonstrated in the Mexican-American War, U.S. artillery was both skillful and aggressive in battle, a trait which federal units continued. Much of the West Point training regimen emphasized mathematics and its uses in war. Northern soldiers had the advantage of high-quality guns and shells. Although many Confederate commanders undoubtedly possessed good skills, their guns and munitions demonstrated markedly inferior qualities, creating a disparity which only grew wider over time. At any rate, many of their best officers devoted their talents to the cavalry instead. That being said, southern generals such as Longstreet showed they had no lack of the tactical understanding of how to employ artillery. At times, the Confederacy would assemble some of the largest concentrations of artillery power the world had ever seen. Three or four regiments put together formed a brigade led by a brigadier general. Now, the word general has entered the English lexicon and it became so common that the significance of it has been lost. General officers, a word originally described from Captain General, can lead independent armies in the field, and it is a rank with some amount of statecraft involved. A general, of any rank, ought to consider the political implications of his actions. In the United States, and many other nations, general officers are allowed a great deal of latitude in their decisions, they could set some amount of policy for their local commands, and in times of war, carry out a certain amount of low-level diplomacy. Now, they could still receive rebukes for mistakes, but a great deal of public trust went into the position 
and it was the apex of any military career. Generals of all ranks also have some amount of leeway in how they command. Some lead from the front in conspicuous demonstrations of courage, but others quietly manage the battle from the rear, receiving updates and sending out riders with fresh orders. Some rally soldiers left and right, while others sent a few firm words of encouragement or advice to subordinates and left it there. In the Civil War, there was a bit of a template for how a good colonel should act, but a general should do whatever is needed, however it is needed. That said, all generals required a good-sized staff, but American practice was only now groping towards the establishment of a professional, Prussian-style formal general staff. Besides, even all of West Point together couldn't provide enough trained subordinates. Therefore, generals on both sides and in every theater put together staff as best they could and often trained their assistants personally. As such, staff officers exercised considerable implicit authority. One thing no general officer would tolerate was a subordinate disrespecting his staff officers. Now the next level up, a major general, held command over a division. Division strength units could vary quite widely in their overall manpower, though around four brigades normally made one up, so somewhere in the region of 12,000 men. At the beginning of the war, a division was about the most powerful formation nearly anyone in the Americas had ever commanded, and surprisingly few individuals ever held that honor. Major generals often spent more time looking at maps than at battlefields, and much of their day would be spent in figuring out when and where to move units so as not to block roads, while at the same time ensuring that sufficient supplies could be moved around to feed everyone, not to mention managing the armies of carts and horses to deal with all of this. At this rank, strategy and logistics were the order of the day more than tactics, and the most successful major generals always remembered that. Several divisions together made up a corps, and formations of this size began to enter the American military structure in 1862. Major generals also commanded corps, in part because the rank of lieutenant general had yet to be revived, specifically because the United States had never acquired such a high rank. The only lieutenant general in American history was George Washington himself, although General Winfield Scott received a temporary, or brevet, promotion to the same. Eventually, General Grant will become the second man to hold the rank permanently. To mention one quirk of the United States military structure, George Washington is, and presumably always will be, the highest-ranking soldier. He has been granted posthumous rank increases, and is currently General of the Armies of the United States, giving him possibly the greatest career of any deceased soldier in history. In case it comes up, the Confederacy did not formally create the title of Lieutenant General, although in practice referred to a major general placed at the head of a corps as such. Similarly, although no formal rank existed to cover it, major generals might also command armies composed of several corps, as many as five at a time, or even multiple armies in the field. Late in the Civil War, large formations upward of a 100,000 soldiers require these ever-larger structures in order to function although command and control stretch to the limits in order to manage these forces. The role of cavalry units in the Civil War varied quite widely, and they will still form a critical part of the actual war fighting, 
even as their battlefield role diminishes in comparison to the Napoleonic era. We will, of course, discuss that when it comes time to talk about armaments and practice. At the beginning of the conflict, cavalry units tended to be smaller and employed as part of a regiment. But over time, larger and more concentrated cavalry formations are employed, first regiments, and eventually a separate corps altogether in the Eastern Theater. The advantage of doing this lay in the fact that cavalry had changed from a tactical weapon to a strategic tool. Instead of threatening infantry in the line of battle, they constantly probed and raided the enemy, scouting for any weakness and guarding the flanks of an army. Doing this as one combined unit under the command of a single leader simply made more sense, and allowed for greater control while also concentrating information. The Confederate cavalry will, quite literally, run rings around the Federal units until relatively late in the war, a product of the many fine horsemen and even finer horse stock available to southern units. You may have also noticed that we become somewhat vague about exactly how many soldiers made up larger and larger agglomerations of troops. This is in large part because governments assembled, and still assemble, troops in a given time and place to accomplish specific objectives not to fit an arbitrary hypothetical force structure. If you need 8,000 men, you gather 8,000 men and do not bother over much about whether it ought to be a division or a couple large brigades until later, if at all. If such consideration is even needed to resolve an organizational issue. As often as not, officers received rank on an ad hoc basis to fix the problem caused by rapid mobilization. And that brings us to our last point. During the war years, and especially in 1861, both Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis threw around rank quite freely. Some men rocketed up to become major generals very quickly, largely for political reasons or because they made crucial contributions to war resources through recruiting. This caused an utter multitude of awkward issues later on during the actual fighting. Several wildly incompetent, or at least very inexperienced, officers obtained a high rank beyond their ability. Unfortunately, one of the other quirks of the Western European and American military structure is, if that two officers have the same rank, authority may be decided based on the date they received that rank. This is a terrible system in the abstract, but when such decisions had to be made, they usually had to be made in a great hurry. Neither Lincoln nor Davis had the luxury of a long analysis of the potential abilities of many of their commanders. They had to use the material at hand to fight the war, and that meant making sometimes bad decisions, and dealing with the consequences when they became apparent. Besides, in the end nobody, north or south, displayed any reliable predictions concerning which officers would prove their mettle. If the appointments weren't brilliant, well, then neither did they display a complete want of judgment by either Lincoln or Davis. The two simply made do with the choices at hand. However, we will get to talk about some of the uh, fantastic, and not-so-fantastic, choices of officers soon. For now, we'll return to politics and the early mobilization, with the legal issues that dawned in the rush for security in the first weeks or months of the war, when secessionists in Maryland thought that they were about to take that state into the Confederacy and the armies were still assembling at Washington and Richmond. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you'll come back next time.